Welcome to the NARPM Podcast, where we bring you the most in-depth look into the property management industry. We discuss hot topics with property managers, vendors, and those that support the property management industry. The National Association of Residential Property Managers is the recognized leader in property management. Our host is Pete Newbig, co-founder of Empire Industries Property Management and co-founder and CEO of VPM Solutions, where property management meets global talent. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the host and are not necessarily those of NARPM. Now, here's your host, Pete Newbig. Welcome to the NARPM Podcast, and thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Pete Newbig, and we have another great show today. I know I say that every time, but it is actually true. We have Allison DeSaro, who's the Senior Vice President of Property Management Banking at Enterprise Bank and Trust. She's considered the leading industry specialist who is well-known and respected for her vast knowledge of real estate trust bank accounts. Allison only banks property management companies and ensures their client trust funds are protected accordingly. She often teaches on the subject and has been a resource for management companies, orders, consultants, attorneys, and the NARPM podcast. So I'm really excited to talk to Allison, which this brings us to our hot topic of the day. The hot topic is, well, let's talk about how to set up your banking. I know for a lot of you, this might be like property management 101, but I literally just had a conversation with some guys that started their property management business like a little over a, a little less than a year ago, and they were commingling funds. They, they, you know, we think some some of the stuff that we think are basic knowledge, it's not. It's really not basic knowledge. I can I can tell you that when I first started my property management firm, everything was going into one account. So obviously, we don't want to commingle funds. So a typical property management firm will have at least two most likely three and probably even more, but you need a, what I feel is a minimum of three accounts, right? So you have your owner trust account or your owner account, you have your security deposit account, and then you have your corporate accounting, okay? So you do, you do not need a separate account for each owner account. So one of the misconceptions of people at their first start, they're like, oh, I need to create a new bank account for every owner that I receive. You actually don't need to do that. You can have one owner account and we want to make it a trust account and all the money that goes in and out of that owner account the accounting is set up through your property management software and we'll talk about that here in a second you don't need a separate account for security deposits so in most in so you have to check your state laws some states you have to have them separate out some states you don't in most you know in most cases you you, you don't i personally like separating out the accounts for security deposit and for your owner account. I think it's just easier for bookkeeping wise. However, it can make it more difficult when you get a new resident and they have to have one check go to security deposit account and then one check goes to a different account in your in your owner account. So let's talk about the, the property management software. Appfolio that I know of actually built in their software now where it can actually divvy the security deposit and the the, the first month's rent into different accounts. So now you, so now they can electronically take it and move money to two separate accounts, which, which is great. But what a lot of people don't understand is they think when they're buying a property management software, they're actually buying a property management software. And what the, the, the truth is, it's an accounting software that does property management. 
Give you an example. Again, this company, they were doing all of their property accounting out of QuickBooks. So imagine that all these rents coming in and going out and char- you know, charging your maintenance, maintenance fees and, and all these all these fees that come in and out, money that gets transferred in and out of this account. If imagine if you weren't using your accounting software, it, it would be it would you would need like four accountants, uh, depending on the size you are. So the accounting software, when set up correctly, will make sure that the money goes into the right accounts. And then you do a sweep at the end of the month where you get your management fees, your and your any other additional fees, leasing fees, lease renewal fees that get swept into your QuickBooks or your corporate accounting. I know that the property management software also, some of them do corporate accounting. I am not a big fan of this. I like having traditional software like QuickBooks be the corporate accounting, mainly because your CPAs and your your traditional you know CPA firms, they don't understand the accounting that when it comes from Appfolio Propertyware. Also, what I have found, and this could be have changed over time, but what I found is when I was running my corporate books through Propertyware, there were some limitations that they didn't have in, in QuickBooks. So QuickBooks was just a little bit better tool to use. However, if if finances are a thing, you can't have everything run out of your property management software. Now, your owner account and your security deposit account need to be set up as trust accounts, right? By having the trust account, this allows each individual account to be FDIC insured up to 250000 If you just have one account and you did what I did early on, I labeled it as a trust account because I heard, oh, you need to be a trust account and wasn't really sure what that actually did or what a trust account was. Then the full account is only FDI insured up to $250,000. And obviously, now that we have the SVB bank challenge that came through and banking industry seems to be, you know, rocky at best right right about now, it's important to get your account set up correctly. We're going to talk to Allison DeSaro in this episode to actually break this down for you all. So I'm really excited to talk to Allison. We'll be right back after these messages, and then we will be on the other side with Allison. Scaling your business means juggling many moving parts, leaving you wondering how to manage it all. How can you keep your eye on growth and streamline your operations? At RentBridge, we've created the Property Management Operating System, an ecosystem for property management marketing and process automation, where you can view and take action on the most important aspects of your operations, from sales and new owner onboarding to leasing, collections, renewals, and more. By bringing operations and marketing under one platform, you can have end-to-end visibility of your owners, tenants, and vendors from the first moment they interact with you, allowing you to add more doors with less effort and scale a truly profitable property management business. To learn more, visit rentbridgegroup.com today. Did you know that most tenants struggle to come up with a large sum of money needed to move into their new rental home? Let Renters Insurance Solutions help you solve this problem by giving tenants another option for security deposits. Property managers can make up to $200 per door annually with our programs. Learn more at our website, yourris.com. That's Y-O-U-R-R-I-S.com. Renters Insurance Solutions, your experts in property management and insurance. Welcome back, everybody. As promised, I have my good friend, Allison DeSaro with Enterprise Bank. Allison, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. 
Well, I had to get our resident NARPM banker on the podcast. I think people would have been amiss if I did not get you on, especially what, what happened with the SVB banking or the Silicon Valley banking incident. So can you tell us at a, from a banker's perspective at a high level, what actually happened with SVB bank? And then give us an overview and then, what, then give us your opinion on what, if they didn't get bailed out, what do you think the cascading effect would have been? Okay. So, you know, I'll, I'll first say, I think this is really important because, you know, the majority of what we and, and probably every other banker out there too, but what we at Enterprise have been dealing with, with our customers in any industry, personal or corporate <clears throat> for the last now two or three weeks is really just the fear, right? And so I think it's important that everybody understands, like you said, what happened because you don't know what happened and you can't really understand whether your bank is doing it right or not, or at least just have faith in your bank to whatever degree you can as a consumer. So in a nutshell, what happened with SVB was I think, you know, a few triggering factors. One, there you've all heard this, but the majority of their clientele was VC-backed tech startup companies. And then when it came to the personal side, it was mostly high net worth individuals linked back to those companies. So that's important to know, first of all, because you know, generally a bank really shouldn't have that much of a concentration in one, not only one client, but really one industry. A little bit of context here. So like I came up, you know, as, as a banker and I, once we started getting really successful, I remember my CEO at the time always said like no more than 10%, which means that no client can have more than 10% of your deposit portfolio at the bank. And the reason being is, as I'm sure many of you can understand with your own clients, if one client leaves and they have more than 10%, that's, that, that's a giant loss on the bank, right? That you have to make up for. So what I also think is that you shouldn't have more than 10%, well, probably more than 10% probably, but you, you still need to have a concentration limit on industry as a whole, not just the client. They had almost everything on this one industry. So they were really reliant on them. That's important to know to then understand what happened next. So in general, Banks, you know, I'll kind of break it down. Let's say, you know, banks obviously do loans and deposits. Deposits are essentially the liability on the bank. You place your deposits with the bank, the liability, because when the bank, when you want to take your deposits out, the bank has to give you that money back. But the banking system doesn't just sit on cash like that. So when you get the cash, so to speak, the deposits, you lend them out. And if you can't lend them out, meaning you can't make safe, sound loans, or you just don't have the you know, the driving loan industry to back it up, to back up those loans, then you have to invest that, that cash. Many banks diversify and do many of those things, right? So you, you lend, you invest, you invest in many different types of investments, but a lot of banks do invest, most banks actually do invest in what's called treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. That is not uncommon. That is actually very fairly common. The problem is, is that when, Silicon Valley Bank invested the majority of that money in the treasury bonds. They were investing it in long-term treasury bonds. Now, before Fed started increasing rates back in, if I'm wrong, I think it was around February or March at this point, it's been a crazy year, but before they started increasing those rates, while would that have been you know, recommended to put the majority of their investments in that those long-term bonds? No, but it probably wasn't as risky then because no one expected the rates to continue to go up. They were as low as they could get for several years. So, and that no one really saw them continue to go up. 
then of course, Fed start hiking rates. So as those rates start to go up, the value of those bonds go get lower, right? So if you if they had you know invested in one year or two year treasury bonds, they would have been in a lot a much different boat. But what happened is there was you know back to this industry, right, of venture capital companies and tech companies. Fed started raising rates. They were, it was, it was more, you know, it was easier for them to, instead of secure a loan, to then go and just access their cash. So they were accessing their cash, which created a slow runoff of deposits. Not what anyone would consider a run, just a slow decline in deposits. So the bank has to start paying that back. So now they have to start accessing these loans, but they're taking a realized loss on these treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And so they had to, they had to continue to take a loss. They took, I wish I could remember the number off the top of my head, but I'm blanking. It was a gigantic loss on these funds in order to pay back their depositors. So they essentially went to go ask for, to raise more money, unfortunately, because you're just one industry that they're banking, essentially. And this is really my layman's term way to explain it. Mm -hmm. Word got out, people lost their faith. And, and because it's one industry, you're essentially listening to a couple people who run that industry as a whole in Silicon Valley say, take your money out. So in, I think, one to two days, there were billions of dollars being run out of Silicon Valley Bank. And in order for them to pay them back, they had to access all the capital that, that they could, and they couldn't liquidate fast enough, and they also couldn't even liquidate fully. So they were, from that moment on, in a deficit. And then that's when the Fed came in and broke them down, took them out because, you know, there was no money to pay back the depositors. So and that's really in like a layman's term, nutshell way to explain it. But I think it's like I said, it's really these like these triggering factors. One industry who's an industry who is highly influenced by just a few people. I mean, in the grand scheme of things in Silicon Valley and a bank that wasn't making sound loans. If you think about their, the majority of their loans, they were also lending to these VC backed and startup companies. VC backed is one thing, but startup companies, they're, you know, what I call, I hope you don't mind my candor, just airball loans. So now they also didn't have the pledgeable loans to go and, and liquidate either. So now they're in, you know, again, it's, it's kind of like the, it's the worst of all the worlds. It's just a, it was a, it was a bad, bad storm. Now, when I deposit money into my bank, can my, my understanding is the bank can actually invest like, like 10 times the amount of that $1 that I put in. Is that, is that true? Like they can, they can do other things like with that, with that money. Like it's not just a one for one. They can, they can say, oh, we're going to go ahead and invest nine, nine or $10 for every $1 that they have in the account. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't speak to the number, but yes, they can, they, they have an allowance to go out and loan again. Got it. Okay. All right. So if, if they, if Silicon Valley Bank wasn't bailed out, what, what do you, you think that this would have dominoed into other banks and other industries, or do you think it would have been kind of firewalled off and just really hurt the tech industry? What, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, they, I think what you mean when you say bailout is backstop, right? The feds came in and backstopped the deposits. So that everyone got their money, whether they were insured or not, essentially, right? Because right. they weren't really bailed out. They did go, they did go under. 
So if they weren't, I mean, honestly, I, I hate to even think about that. I think it would have been a catastrophe. It would have been an absolute catastrophe across the banking system, across the economy as well. The amount of companies that were, these companies had billions of dollars. Some of these companies had billions of dollars in one bank in order to put into their companies. And, and you know, this is Silicon Valley as well, right? Like this is right. major tech. Some of these, some of these companies that are public companies, meaning like they're publicly saying that they were customers of Silicon Valley Bank, most of those run our lives, right? Like right. we need, it, yeah. I mean, really think about it. Like that's how yeah. we live these days. But in all, and I think in all assets, it would, in all um, aspects, it would have been a catastrophe. And it would have just, not that there isn't still fear in the banking industry, but it would have absolutely created even more fear, causing additional runs on more banks and at a lot fast, at a much faster pace. And, you know, pe- people just being terrified, not knowing where to put their money. Yeah, so many of us in the in the PM industry have over the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, right? Because you have like that's what FDIC insures, right? Up to two fifty, and so I've been hearing stories like people are like going to all these different banks, you know, putting all these different money in in, in different banks. For us, the two fifty is typically in trust accounting, right? It's it's the security deposits. I, I know at Empire, I had close to a million dollars in a trust account, so. I know when I went to Chase and I was asking them to do a trust account, they just literally said, okay, this is in trust of. Like, they just, like, relabeled the account. What is the difference between, like, my Chase account that was really not a trust account, evidently, versus, like, a real true trust account? What is a true trust account? So, this is all called fiduciary accounting, right? So, and I'll say that first, the, the term fiduciary, trustee, as agent for and custodian are essentially just all used interchangeably. But the term, if you're reading about it with FDIC, is fiduciary. Now, it's not that banks can't do it. Any bank can do it, meaning that, you know, it's not like a product that you sign up for with the FDIC. I mean, of course, you have to be subscribed to the FDIC. But, you know, for instance, you mentioned Chase. Chase, of course, is subscribed to the FDIC. So as long as you're subscribed to FDIC, which most banks out there are, you can get your, you can, if you set it up correctly, your customers can get this same insurance. So I think that that's like the miscommunication or misunderstanding here in this industry. A lot of people think that it's just a product that we as enterprise offer. That's not it at all. It really comes down to our understanding and our knowledge of the requirements from the FDIC in order, in order to get these accounts, the protection that they need. So like, you know, I, I hate to just call out banks, but you mentioned Chase, so let's talk about Chase. So a bank like Chase, for instance, might just set up an account as, you know, Empire Property Management, which is the legal vesting of the name. And that is your legal vesting of the name. If you look at your articles of incorporation, that is the legal vesting. And then on the secondary line, the secondary line, which is just a nice word for nickname, in my opinion, but the secondary line could, could maybe, again, depending on which thing, actually I see statements from all different banks all the time. Sometimes it doesn't even say this, but then it would just say trust on the secondary line. So that secondary line is essentially a nickname. There's nothing legal about that name added to the account. So it really comes down to the legal vesting of the entity itself at the bank on all depository records, not just bank statements, so that... You know, for instance, if a receiver were to come in to the bank because your bank was under scrutiny or about to go under, they could come in and they could easily identify this account or this entity as a custodial held account, again, which is fiduciary trust account, for instance. 
but but it has to be on all depository records in legal form. So for instance, like if you look at your legal name of business, it would read all of that information on there in the legal name of business, even though it's not your legal name of business, but it would read that within that those depository records. That's like a very, very basic, I guess, part of it, but it really comes down to how the account is vested. So I'll go back to like, think about your family. I mean, most people out here, you know, at some point they, they get, they work with an estate attorney and get a trust created, right? I know my husband and I, we did a long time ago. Even though we're using, and most people do use yours or your spouse's social security number as the tax ID number for that entity, if that entity is created by an estate attorney, for instance, then that is essentially its own entity, even though it's under mine or my husband's social security number, because they have all the documentation to essentially say, okay, this basically your articles of incorporation for your trust, which they're not called articles of incorporation, but that's what you'd compare it to, show that that's the name of the legal name of this entity. So that's really what comes down to like the most basic red flag, I would say. There are there is a lot that has to go into it, but that's probably the most basic red flag at the bank. So Chase and most banks out there, because that's not your legal name of business and that's not the legal entity name, they have to add it to the secondary line. So I think it really comes down to your bank, you know, I guess specialty. I mean, you know, enterprise as a whole is not is not a property management bank. We're a very, very well diversified bank and we have specialty divisions in many markets, but we do have a specialty division in property management banking, right? So we know we work with legal compliance, regulatory attorneys, our operations team, everyone is on the same page about what these accounts are, how they have to be legally vested so that it's consistently, you know, vested correctly as a, as a chart of accounts at the bank. Right. So in my case, if I had a million dollars in security deposit account that was not set up correctly and something did happen, I would only be insured up to $250,000 of that million dollars. But if I set it up correctly, then it would show that that million dollars is actually made up of so many different accounts and none none of them are over the 250000 Can you kind of explain that a little bit to the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. And bear with me, this might be long here. So... So again, so it goes back to what I said about the bank setting the accounts up correctly, right? But so these fiduciary accounts, this is all called pass-through insurance as part of the fiduciary account. So you can have, you know, we'll keep it more specific to property management, of course, but this is not related to only property management industry. Got it. But you can have, you can be acting as fiduciary or as trustee for multiple beneficiaries. That is really the term. The term is beneficiaries here, right? So whether that's your owners or your tenants, that's whose money you're holding on to. Beneficiary equals money whose people whose money you, you are acting as trustee for. So they are insured just like any other person or company at the bank, 250,000 across the board of the bank. So let's say just as a disclosure, let's say for instance, John Smith is in your, you know, one of your owners and he has $200,000 in your trust account. But let's say John Smith also has $100,000 just coincidentally at that bank because he opened a personal account with that bank, right? Which you might actually see in banks like the more consumer-friendly banks like Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America. That means John Smith is only insured $250,000 across the bank. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, but again, I mean, you want to also make sure that he's even going to get his money out of the trust account, right? So to that point, certain disclosures have to be met. 
So you have to be as the agent. So just so you know, so in, in FDIC legal terms, the IDI is the bank, the agent is the trustee fiduciary, and then there's also a third party as well, which is typically like an escrow company, for instance, or, or an attorney. So the bank, of course, has to meet its requirements, of course, like we spoke about, which I mentioned one of them. And then the company or the aid, the fiduciary has to be holding name, tax ID number, as well as spot balances, essentially is what I'm calling it. So the ownership interest in that account, right? Or, or at that bank is probably the better way to think about it. Because like I said, it's really across the bank. So you guys do, you guys, the agents do hold that information, right? So one, one of those three, the IDI, the agent, or the third party needs to be holding that information. You guys do hold that information. A lot of our clients know that we hold certain information as well, but you guys hold that information at all times within your software. So let's talk about, if you don't mind, like if Silicon Valley Bank had gone under, well, they did go under, but if they were not backstopped and if they they banked the property management company, right? You call it backstopped, I call it bailed out, tomato, tomato. Yeah, <laughs> it is backstopped. <laughs> so let's just assume that, trust accounts or property management companies. And let's assume, although I'm pretty accurate, it wasn't, but let's just assume that they did it correctly, right? So in a perfect world, they did it correctly, but the bank didn't backstop those deposits. So what would have happened, you know, this is my verbiage, but I essentially call it like two different buckets, right? So there's the consumer company buckets, non-custodial held accounts, and then there's the custodial held accounts. And these are the two buckets for the purpose of this conversation. So we found out that Friday when we found out that SCB was going under, we found out that, or they said that any insured depositor will receive their insured funds on Monday, right? So what that essentially means is that they, you know, you pull it, it's all by tax ID number or social security number. So you pull that information, you as in the receiver, pull that information and it shows, okay, this company, it basically all these companies or tax ID numbers or however you want to picture it, if they have more than 250,000, they were going to get 250,000 on Monday when they came in to get access to their funds. If they had less, of course, they just get whatever they had. Now there's the separate bucket, which I call the custodial held accounts. They need to first be able to identify that these are actually true custodial held accounts. Again, that goes back to the bank's liability, right? What the bank is doing to underwrite those accounts correctly at the bank. And if they cannot easily identify that, let's say that custodian comes in on Monday and that custodian, let's call them, you know, the property manager comes in and shows that based off of their property management software report, which is normally what it is, that as of the day that the bank went under, so Friday, the day that the bank was seized, I should probably use seized instead of went under, but the day that the bank was seized, A, no one owner within that account had, or relationship, I should say, had more than $250,000. Now you also have to show that not only did they not have more than 250,000 under your fiduciary held relationship, they also didn't have any more money at the bank. Now that goes to the receiver, right? So the receiver essentially sees your spot balance. Let's say your spot balance, like I said, was $200,000 for John Smith based on that tax ID number. They also have to run that tax ID. I mean, I'm saying this in very layman's terms, but they also have to run that tax ID number to see that John Smith doesn't have any more than that at the bank under that social security number. So now would you get, because of all that work that they have to do, would you get your money back that day? No, it would take a few days, but 
it would be insured if it was all done correctly. And it would take a few days instead of either never getting the funds back or several months, maybe even years through the court system to get those funds back, right? Of course, and then there's a trickle-down effect that your business would basically be out, right? So that's what I meant earlier. Like it would just be catastrophic if people couldn't get their, it trickles down to everyone. So it really comes down to how you're, how you, you are holding the information um, as well as how the bank is setting these accounts up correctly. That's obviously what we do, but it is very difficult, maybe not for me anymore, but it was to get into it, right? It was, it's a very difficult chart of account to fully understand and not only understand invest correctly, but also more importantly, manage moving forward for banks and you know, I could go down a rabbit hole about this, but it's not, and I won't, but it's not just about you and your compliance. It's about us and our compliance as well. We're, we go through audits as well. We are held to certain standards as well. And so there is a lot more that needs to go into it, which is why, in my opinion, a true division is really what matters because you don't just have one banker there saying, yes, absolutely, this is correct. But then that banker leaves tomorrow. What does that mean, right? You have a, an actual team with policies and procedures and understanding of how this all works. That is an incredible amount of knowledge, Allison, and we appreciate you. <laughs> it's a lot. It a is lot. a lot. And I think the, the main takeaway is make sure that, especially for us in the PM firm, the PM industry that has a lot of a, a big accounts, that security deposit account, make sure it's set up correctly. And so that you're just, you're just making sure that you're, 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 Clients' money's insured, basically. Would that would that be a good kind of like high level? Like first thing I should do is make sure my security deposit stuff is set up correctly, because that's our biggest exposure with something like this. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I just need full disclosure. It's not just your security deposits either, right? It's your client trust funds. It's what a lot of people in this industry call their operating account. That's not what a bank would consider an operating account. That's what we'd consider a client trust, but. Basically, the, the, the rule of thumb to think about, which I've been telling everybody for years, is really just think anytime, even if it's for five minutes, anytime that you're holding funds that don't belong to you, that needs to be held in trust because you're acting as fiduciary for those funds. Interesting. Okay. So let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Where's your take on security deposit and the kind of the owner uh, deposits? Like, do you combine them typically or do you see most people combine the two or do you see most people separate the two? I've seen it both. I've seen it done both ways, but just wanted to know where you came out on that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is more of a state question too, right? Like some states, you actually do have to separate them. Mm-hmm. States like California, for instance, you don't need to separate them. They don't tell you one way or the other which one to do, but I know that it is preferred to combine them, right? So I actually think, again, I can't. I can't change the state's rulings. In some other states, they actually most states require you to separate them. I can't change their, their rulings on that, but I actually completely disagree with it. So, you know, a little, it's obviously accounting issues. Like if you think about, let's say that you are collecting, right? You have two separate accounts. You're collecting rent. You collect a tenant pays a little late on the fourth. You pay out your owners by the sixth. You find out from your bank that, you know, you, that tenant bounced their check. Now you've essentially brought from Peter to pay Paul. And in a state like California, who's very strict on their audits, they're going to catch that. And that's obviously not only frowned down upon, but you could get fined for or fail an audit for. So if you have that security deposit, that's covering the deficit in the interim. 
So yes, could you transfer the security deposit in? Sure, you yeah, to cover that a, deficit. But I just feel do. like why not? Yeah, it's it's just more work. Just combine everything. And if if you have the accounting software, which I'd say 99% of the companies out here do, then it's going to account for that anyway. You don't really need to separate them. It's not easier accounting by any means. That's great. Well, thanks, Allison. All right, we are up against it. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then I'm going to hit you with the the lightning round. Okay. All right, we'll be right back, everybody. Create the best move-in experience for your resident or homeowner. Citizen Home Solutions is a utility concierge service designed to assist with services needing activation prior to moving into a new home. Our experienced team will help eliminate the stress of setting up services. No more calling a long list of service providers to get everything connected and ready for move-in day. Your client will value the white glove service provided on your behalf. True, Citizen Home Solutions assist with utilities, but more importantly, We create an experience that your client will appreciate and love. Our service is free and offers you a revenue share program. Want to know more? Visit pmcpartner.com. Have you ever considered hiring a property management virtual assistant but didn't know where to start? Or have you tried hiring a virtual assistant but you weren't satisfied with the number of qualified applicants? If so, VPM Solutions is here to help. VPM is the world's first virtual talent marketplace dedicated specifically to property management and real estate. We have thousands of talented virtual assistants ready to work for you, including assistance for accounting, leasing, maintenance coordination, rent collections, and much more. With VPM, you can post jobs, screen candidates, hire and pay your virtual assistants, all from within our state-of-the-art platform. VPM is the easy button for hiring and managing your virtual team. And the best part, VPM Solutions is 100% free to employers. That's right, free. No placement fees, no employer markups, and no hidden charges. With VPM, property managers get the talent they need while reducing costs and improving customer service. Visit vpmsolutions.com and create your free account today. PestShare, a pest control amenity for your resident benefits program starting at just $5 per door. You can give your residents the pest control coverage they need. PestShare will even pay for the expensive infestations like bed bugs and cockroaches. End the debate over who pays for pest control while PestShare turns an expense into added revenue. For more information, check out their website at pestshare.com forward slash property managers. All right, welcome back, everybody. Allison DeSaro, you are now officially in the lightning round. Are you ready? All right. It sounds I don't like know. you're nervous. All right. I, so. I know. I know. As one who downloads the Narpin podcast all the time, you know who the lightning round. So I, I'm sure you got this. <laughs> what is one piece of advice you would give someone just starting out in business? Tap your resources. Okay. Does pineapple belong on pizza? <laughs> I mean. Well, it depends on who you're asking. I'm asking you. Jeff Toto? I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, actually, no. I will answer that for myself. Pineapple does not belong on pizza. Okay? uh, Well, we are in agreement there. What book are you currently reading or one that has impacted your business or life? I'm currently reading 
slowly, and I'm going to blank on the name of it, but it's by Naval Ravikant. Is that how you say it? Naval um, Ravikant. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's like right outside my office. I'll go grab it. Almanac. No, no worries. <laughs> what was your first job? My first job was at a, what do you call them? Not a gift shop. It was in Cape Cod and it was like a novelty store. Novelty shop. Okay. Like had like, had like CDs and you know, all that. It's kind of like a Newberry comics. Okay. What superhero do you most associate with? You want me to go the other way? Oh my you want me to go the other way? You want me to go with Disney <laughs> character do you most associate with? You can answer either one of them. Okay. Oh, this is too fast. Is that cheesy? I don't even know. Let's just go with that. Would you say that again? You blanked out for a second. Said Wonder, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Let's go with that. I like it. I like it. I'm sure that's what my husband would call me. So, you know, <laughs> let's just go with that. <laughs> we'll ask him. Other than the NARPM podcast, do you have another podcast that you listen to or recommend? I love, love Jordan Morella's podcast, the Profitable Property Manager podcast. It's a good one. It's a good one. Do you prefer dogs or cats? Dogs. All right. Allison, if somebody listened to this podcast and they want to reach out to you and start asking questions about Enterprise Bank and how they can start working with you all, what's the best way to contact you? My email, which is adesaro at enterprisebank.com. You can also just go to our website. If you go to enterprisebank.com and you search for our property management division, there is a contact us form in there. And that actually goes straight to me. And if you would like to join NARPM, if you've been listening and you're on the fence, you can give them a call at 800-782-3452 or go to narpm, N-A-R-P-M dot O-R-G. And if you are looking for remote team members or want to talk more about how they can significantly impact your business and your life, give me a call at 832-656-3740 or email me at pete at vpmsolutions.com. Allison, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate you. This has been a production of the National Association of Residential Property Managers, the recognized leader in property management, along with your host, Pete Newbig, CEO of VPM Solutions, where property management meets global talent. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the host and are not necessarily those of NARPM. If you have a hot topic you'd like discussed on the podcast, please email us at radio at narpum.org. 